Don't be scared. This is the podcast that always leaves the light on. This is Monster Under the Bed, the podcast that takes some of the fears and myths in our society and busts them wide open. My name is Alar Tankler. What do you remember, Viv? Okay, I remember it was around Christmas time. Um, we had gone already because my mom wanted to take a picture in front of the Christmas tree like every year. So she had gotten all ready, she had her hair done, her dress on, and her stockings on. But so us being very small, we wanted to play hide and seek again. So we were running around and Maxine had to go hide, but she slid on the hardwood floors and she bumped her head into the table. So there was a lot of blood, I was very scared. Mom also got very scared and very angry. And so we had to rush Maxine to the hospital. And uh, I just remember having to wait in the waiting room and I looked up a bit to see where was Maxine and she was laying down on the bed under a lot of anesthesia. And my mom was next to her. And what do you remember, Maxine? Do you remember any of that? I don't really remember anything, actually. But you still have a scar, right, on your forehead? Yes, I do, a tiny little scar. And what if I told you that if you bust your head open today, we wouldn't go to the hospital? If I open my head again today, and if you told me I couldn't go to a hospital, I didn't know, I don't know what I could do because I... Uh... Because you would be a little bit scared, right? Yes. So you mean like the hospital makes you feel safe, right? Yes. And secure, knowing that the hospital yes. is right next door. So a hospital makes your daughter, Maxine, feel safe. What about you, Janelle? Uh, at our, I've always found hospitals to be really strange places. On the one hand, they're terrifying. The white beds, the blood, all the people running around, not to mention the death. Yet on the other hand, I find them really reassuring. So that is kind of like Maxine says that she feels. How old is she? She's 12. Like her, a lot of people are afraid of having fewer hospitals around. Yeah, hospitals are a really expensive way of treating people. And that's an issue when, you know, government budgets are shrinking and healthcare costs are constantly going up. So that's what this episode of Monster in the Bed will explore. The fear that closing hospitals will hurt the quality of our healthcare. Or as I prefer to phrase it, does your hospital need to die? Monster Under the Bed is a podcast from the European Investment Bank, the EU Bank. And what we'll do here is explore different fears and beliefs that people have which are costing us as a society. So in each episode of the podcast, we'll fight one imaginary monster under the bed and hopefully win the battle for a more rational way of doing things in education, healthcare, food, and many other areas. Hi, I'm Janelle. I work with the law at the European Investment Bank. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Monster Under the Bed on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, Player FM, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Alar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R, uh, or you can just tag at EIB. Okay, Janelle, let's start with the basic facts. How much does the EU spend on healthcare? Well, it's 9.6% of GDP, according to the European Commission. 
And that's huge. I think I remember that the EU's GDP is more than 15 trillion euros. So take almost 10% of that, and we're, we're talking about one and a half trillion euros in healthcare spending per year. And that's just in the EU? Exactly. It's massive. But there's a lot of waste. Globally, around 20% of health spending makes no or minimal contribution to good health outcomes. Think of what we could do with all that money. Build more hospitals? Or maybe just build better ones. Ones that are made for the 21st century. Because hospitals are a major source of waste. Things like discharging patients late or over-treatment or long hospital stays for surgical procedures like cataract surgeries or tonsillectomies. All these things end up costing a lot of money. Also, it can turn into kind of an arms race. Uh, I remember back in Estonia, a lot of rural hospitals were all investing in quite expensive equipment until it was centrally decided that maybe you don't need several hospitals in a small area with a state-of-the-art MRI machine. And then a number of smaller hospitals were actually shut down. A lot of people got really freaked out. And I have to admit, as a taxpayer, saving money on healthcare sounds like a great idea. But the minute you start talking about closing hospitals, I get a chill. When I first started researching this episode, so did I. But then I learned a few things that made me feel calmer. For example, some European countries like Germany have a really high number of beds per 1,000 people. And some countries like Spain have a really low number. But the health system in Germany isn't better than in Spain. The World Health Organization ranks Spain's healthcare system one of the best in the world. But healthcare in the 21st century is about getting people in and out of hospitals more quickly, sort of following more of the Spanish example than the German one. It's about day surgeries as opposed to overnight stays and patient-centered care that gets rid of the routine, expensive tests and scans that may not be necessary. So is it really about closing hospitals or just refurbishing them? Well, mainly it's about taking a scalpel to some of the enormous waste without making the quality of healthcare worse. I talked to Tindy Sabo in the European Investment Bank's Life Science Division about how healthcare has changed in the last 20 years and how we can remake our infrastructure so it's more efficient. What I have seen in the last 10, 15 years in, uh, in, uh, in the healthcare sector, European healthcare sector overall, is a um, large number of improvement, but also uh, some um, step backs or, or, or worsenings, uh, deter- deterioration. So, of course, um, we, I think we all uh, recognize that there has been a huge progress in healthcare technology. We have, we have new devices, um, we have a less uh, invasive surgery, uh, shorter recovery times for the patients, we have much better, much more effective drug therapy, we have a personalized medicine, uh, much more information, much better healthcare information, better access to the information by the citizenry, uh, by the patients, we have uh, more educated, better educated, uh, educated patients who are able to take uh, actively take part of their own care. Um, they become managers of their own health, which is which is all positive. Uh, but unfortunately, we have also seen some growing problems. Uh, the first of them is uh, is more and more strained healthcare budgets, growing healthcare costs. 
I mean, uh, of course, uh, improving uh, healthcare and and uh, better health technology costs more money. People have more expectations. Uh, we have the aging problem, the aging population who creates a, a higher disease burden for the European healthcare system. And uh, European policymakers policy have to cope with all these challenges. So in this case, this is, this is a growing problem, a growing challenge. I also talked to Dana Burduja, who works with Tunde in the Life Sciences Division. She says the hospitals are having a hard time adapting. I think if I was to summarize, I would say that um, the technology advanced, the information technology advanced, and the hospitals are trying to put the patient in the center in their approach. And that's not easy in the old infrastructures and using the old approach and mentality of working in a hospital from the medical staff point of view. So I think we're at the point where we see a difference between the way the technology evolved and the patient's um, inf- level of information and the response from the hospital, how they can organize themselves to face these challenges and changes that are coming as a natural evolution due to the um, general health status of the population to the advances in technology and so on. Hospitals do have their place in the 21st century, but just that they need to be calibrated to keep up with the 21st century and to the extent possible anticipate what will happen to health care and health system in this 21st century. I asked Tunde how we can make health care more efficient. She said a lot of work needed to be done to make sure that patients with chronic health issues like diabetes got treatment outside of a hospital setting. This is uh, also about uh, uh, treating the patient on the right place. I mean, not treating the patient in uh, acute care uh, settings. If the patient can be treated in, uh, for instance, a chronic care institution or uh, the patient can receive uh, home care. Another typical waste uh, occurs when, for instance, the, the hospital doesn't economize uh, uh, properly on, on, on the inputs, on the, on the resources it has, like uh, unused medicines or overpriced inputs, uh, like using uh, brand uh, medicines instead of generic uh, uh, medicines or uh, using uh, not the um, appropriate inputs, uh, but um, uh, using more costly inputs when uh, less costly inputs could be used, like uh, using physicians instead of nurses, or as we told, inpatient uh, uh, care instead of outpatient care, etc. And then, uh, of course, uh, um, resources can be also unnecessarily taken away from uh, from patient care. Uh, this is also something the uh, report you mentioned is dealing with, like uh, uh, a lot of uh, administrative waste, like uh, too much money spent on administration, too much money spent on printing unnecessary papers, um, <clears throat> or also in, in certain countries and uh, uh, sadly including in some, still in some European countries, there is a lot of uh, resources uh, uh, wasted on uh, fraud, uh, corruption. So uh, the money that was originally meant to be spent on patients uh, ends up being spent on something else. Can you just tell me a little bit, you're talking about the, the, the role that the hospital plays right now and also the role of the patient. Are there better ways to provide care for people who aren't maybe so sick, people who are just need 
basic minor operations like knee surgery, like cataract surgery, people who you know maybe are being treated for chronic illnesses like diabetes. Is there a better way to do that than to send them to the hospital? Acute, uh, acute care establishments are meant for acute care. I mean, an acute care um, is to be received by patients who have an acute illness episode. The definition of episode that it has a beginning and it has an end. And the end is um, uh, either restored health or largely improved health in a predictable number of days. So this is a acute bed establishment uh, are meant for. And those are the most expensive establishments and uh, those should be uh, uh, appropriately used. For chronic uh, patients, there are the chronic care establishments or uh, there is a growing role uh, for, for home care, community care. So um, the uh, overall health policymakers' aim should be to keep uh, patients out of the hospital and, um, and uh, put the locus of care much more outside the hospital, outside the acute care hospital, because this is the most expensive form of care that can be provided to patients. Uh, for instance, uh, if we just take into consideration a um, terminally ill uh, patient, uh, giving the treatment in an acute care establishment is uh, roughly twice as expensive as in, a, <clears throat> as in a hospice and probably or around 10 times more expensive than, uh, than uh, uh, palliative home care. I had no idea that the cost of treating patients in hospitals was so much higher than other forms of care. Well, this is where the waste comes from. Another source of potential savings is day surgery. A recent report in France estimated increasing the rate of day surgeries by 4% could save 200 million euros a year. But I imagine that not all countries use day surgery as much as they could. You're right. An increasing number of minor surgeries can be performed in the same day, so we don't have to keep somebody at a hospital overnight. Let's take a look at cataract surgeries. In some parts of the developed world, most of the people, almost all of the people who get cataract surgeries are in and out in a day. But in other countries, only 25% of them are. So those people, the other 75% end up staying at the hospital for unnecessary care that they don't, they don't need anymore. There are huge differences for, for the time being. I mean, the pioneers in implementing uh, day surgery were Nordic countries and, and Great Britain. <clears throat> and uh, there are other countries who are also on the way to implement uh, one-day surgery, like, uh, I don't know, Spain, France, Germany, but are much slower in implementing. And there are uh, countries like, for instance, the Czech Republic, the Slovak Republic, Hungary, where we don't even have data on the share of uh, day surgery uh, within the, the um, uh, total number of, of surgeries performed. So there are still, they, they still have a long way ahead. Uh, to do. There's another issue, and, and that's how countries are reimbursed hospitals for procedures. In some cases, hospitals are reimbursed at higher rates when somebody stays overnight as opposed to a day surgery, and that discourages them from putting day surgeries in place. There are within the acute care uh, type of hospitals 
way to deliver the services that are not so expensive for the hospitals. And there you have the day stay and the one day procedures um, that are becoming more and more the norm. And I think the knee replacement and the cataract that you've mentioned are uh, classical examples. The problem when you try to implement these changes is not so much the technology that it's quite well advanced. It's on two fronts. One, that you need to have the staff trained and able to perform these procedures within the context of the specific clinical protocol that sets up the uh, day surgery intervention. And secondly, is that the hospital is not getting a loss by performing this procedure as a day surgery. So depending on how the hospital is reimbursed for the procedures they perform, they might have an incentive to keep the patient in an expensive type of care or in less expensive type of care. But as uh, Dana mentioned, it's uh, pretty much about uh, incentive systems. If you, as a health administrator, if you reimburse a day surgery at a four times lower level than uh, the same surgery with hospitalization, as it was, for instance, the case of Germany just, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, then, of course, you will have 4% uh, day surgery for tonsillectomy, as, as was Germany uh, f f four or five years ago, compared to uh, 70, 80, 90% in the Nordic countries or, or in Great Britain, when where uh, the um, same uh, uh, surgical procedure was reimbursed roughly at the same uh, rate, being uh, day surgery, ambulatory surgery, or or uh, surgery with hospitalization. So these are the best practices that other countries should also follow. The right incentives should be put in place in order to achieve the results, because the the technology is there, and also I believe also the knowledge is there. Uh, all these countries can perfectly perform uh, these procedures on, on ambulatory surgery basis. So if we move more simple procedures to day surgery instead of outpatient surgery, that means we need fewer hospital beds? Well, that's exactly what it means. In some countries, there are too many hospital beds. The capacity is outdated. It was meant for a time when some surgeries were way more invasive and required a longer healing time. But are we letting people heal sufficiently? Sounds like we are just operating and then throwing them out in the street. I think it's about the kind of follow-up care you provide. My dad lives in the U.S., and last year he had knee replacement surgery. Literally a bionic knee. We call him the bionic man. He was in and out a day, but then he had a nurse who came afterwards and a physiotherapist who came for weeks on end. And how did he recover? Well, this summer, he and the kids were hiking in Colorado. He's not going to run a marathon anytime soon, but then he's 76. But if we start cutting the number of hospital beds, won't there be a public backlash? Well, it certainly isn't popular politically. I think it's just the fear for the sake of it, because, uh, because it, it gives a bad image uh, on the government that it's closing hospitals. But, uh, but this, is a, this is a completely necessary process, because... Uh, Everybody is doing it. I mean, we are in an era when, where, um, as we told, the health technology is improving, is progressing. Um, average uh, um, durations of hospitalizations are are um, decreasing. Instead of ten days or eleven days, uh, now the average length of stay is uh, 
8.5 days, I think, of overall, both, I mean, all for all type of, of hospital. Well, no, sorry, seven and a half. It's, it's always going down. Uh, so uh, obviously we, we don't need that much infrastructure. Then if, if we have a look at uh, the hospital beds per, per 1,000 population in Europe, uh, Germany is heading uh, this, uh, I mean, this uh, comparison, this distri distribution with 8.5, 8.1, sorry, beds, hospital beds per 1,000 population. Sweden is uh, on uh, the lowest rank, uh, I mean, having the um, least number of beds per 1,000 population. More specifically, it's 2.3 beds per 1,000 population. So we see that there is a four-fold difference between the lowest and the highest number of beds per 1,000 1, population in Europe. But there is no four-fold difference uh, in, in the outcome. Uh, the outcome in, in the case of the two, two countries is comparable. But then we also have, after Germany, the second uh, highest ranking country is Austria, followed by Bulgaria, Hungary, Czech Republic, Romania, uh, Lithuania, etc., etc. I mean, uh, what I just mentioned, starting from Bulgaria, Hungary, Czech Republic, Romania, uh, Slovakia, my, my own country of origin, I mean, all these countries are the countries with the heaviest, how to say, uh, infrastructure, uh, most uh, beds, uh, hospital beds per 1,000 1, population, but producing the worst uh, healthcare outcome for the time being. They are improving, we have to recognize, but they are relatively still the worst. So size of infrastructure uh, does not ne necessarily uh, is a good predictor of the health outcome of a given country. And for instance, Spain, uh, a country where I, now I'm also citizen, I went to live, I lived uh, more than 15 years in, in Spain, 20 years, sorry, is uh, uh, my favorite good example. Spain uh, is one of the uh, countries with the lowest best in, bad infrastructure and is, uh, is, is one of the top countries in uh, best uh, health outcome in, in the European Union. I think a lot of the reluctance in reducing the number of beds in certain countries is linked with the fact that there is nothing else to be put in place. Austria, the country that Tunda mentioned with a very um, <clears throat> high ratio of beds per thousand population, they're currently implementing such a program that they will put in place primary health care centers dealing with uh, every type of care during extended opening hours, eventually uh, referring people to the hospital, but under very strict and uh, patient-centered regulations that will uh, improve the outcome for the patients in the end. So how do we convince the public that hospitals need to close in some countries? It's a difficult subject, that's for sure. Part of the answer is showing people what different European countries are doing to make healthcare better. I think uh, we are, together with the European Commission, uh, the bank is in a privileged position that we, we can see in real time what is happening out there in Europe. And we can be kind of an eye-opener for these countries that 
you are, for instance, I don't know, being Hungary or Romania or Slovakia, or whichever of the, the typical the Visegrad countries, you know, the, the typically look at the um, Austrian or the, the German example, which are um, good in some sense, but not in the sense of healthcare administration, because these are the highest per capita bed number countries. So the, we, we, we are there to open their eyes that this is not the example to follow. You, you, you should not copy a country's healthcare system, but you, you should listen more to the advice, to the recommendations of, um, of, of the European Commission. We hope that uh, um, non-efficient hospitals will kind of uh, die, die away, fade away. But something that never happens, <laughs> this, this never ever happens. I mean, uh, non-efficient hospitals are eating away uh, scarce resources that could be spent uh, on, on other much more necessary services. So it sounds like the real monster under the bed isn't closing hospitals. It's wasting scarce money for healthcare. Thank you, Janelle, for shining the light underneath the hospital beds to show that there is indeed no monster there. To all our listeners, if you want to keep up with Monster Under the Bed, subscribe to this podcast. We'll have episodes on education, climate, cybersecurity, pretty much anything that will keep you awake at night. And you can subscribe on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, or Player FM, or anywhere else. And we'll see you back here soon for the next episode of Monster Under the Bed. Mm-hmm.